You are listening to the Heavenly Chi podcast, episode number 67. Today, I'm joined by Dr. John McDonald, and it's a very exciting conversation that we're going to have today, and I'm looking forward to it a lot. We're going to be talking about the history of acupuncture in Chinese medicine over the last 51 years, as told and recounted and witnessed by John. Welcome to the show today, John. Thank you. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. For those who have, I guess, grown up in Chinese medicine in Australia, um, almost everyone knows of you. Many people know you personally, have have been taught by you, have been mentored by you. Um, But we have a global audience and some who are abroad may not have had so much interaction with you or may not know who you are. Do you... Would you like to start with um, an intro about yourself? Okay. Um, I started my involvement with acupuncture in 1971 with Russell Jewell. We were at a Tai Chi class one day with a group of friends and somebody brought Felix Mann's book, Acupuncture, the Ancient Art of Chinese Healing and How It Works Scientifically. And he said, look, guys, acupuncture. I said, acupuncture, what's that? And he said, well, you know how when you do Tai Chi, you can feel energy flowing through your body? Well, somebody's mapped the the lines and there's points on those lines and you stick needles in them, it cures diseases. And I said, far out, man, i got to know more about that. And uh, 51 years later, I'm still saying, far out, man, i got to know more about that. Because just the very idea that you can stick a needle in the periphery of the body and somehow that can have 120 different effects on different parts of the body on every system, that is amazing. That is just so gobsmackingly amazing. And I think often it's easy for us to forget how extraordinary that just that very thing is. And there's so much to the to understanding what's actually going on there, what's happening. And some of the bits that are missing in terms of our ability to explain that are actually exactly the same bits that are missing in mainstream medicine. So, for example, much of the work that was done by the, the very well-known Beijing physiologist, uh, Professor Han Jisheng, on all the opioid peptides involved in acupuncture for pain, that work was so original that that basically is the basis for the understanding of opioid peptides in mainstream pain medicine. Uh, everybody in mainstream pain medicine that's ever studied its history knows Han Jisheng. And so while trying to figure out how acupuncture worked, he found out a great deal about how pain and how it's influenced by opioid peptides in the body works. And so I'm convinced that if we ever reach a point where we have a fairly comprehensive understanding of acupuncture, we will have by that stage contributed significantly to expanding physiology because the bits that we need to understand what is happening are bits that are still missing. Uh, I mean, I know that commonly people imagine that physiology is kind of done and dusted And that's just so far from the truth. I mean, when researching allergy, uh, I was amazed to find out that nobody knows yet what causes allergy. I was just bowled over by that. Like, we we don't actually know what causes allergy. And so we know what causes it to the extent of, well, the immune system is making mistakes. The immune system is reacting to harmless things as if they were harmful. And so it's overreacting. And so it's a little bit 
use the analogy, it's a little bit like a trigger-happy sentry. Uh, they're not stopping people and asking for the password. Uh, as soon as something moves, they're shooting at it. And so the immune system is overreacting to things that are harmless. And that's all very well. But, you know, let's play why mummy. Why mummy? Uh, we don't know. <laughs> that's where we get off. We, we don't know. We don't know why the immune system is making a mistake and identifying something as foe when, in fact, it's not friend either. It's just, it's just nothing. It's, it's, it's irrelevant. It's unimportant. And so we've got kind of the hygiene hypothesis, and you see that like kicking around the internet a bit, you know, oh, we need kids to get their fingers in the mud. And where that comes from is a Danish study where they were comparing children in Denmark who were raised in city apartments and kids in the country on farms. And what they found was that the kids on the farms had a much lower level of allergy. And uh, I was saying, well, it's because when the body is learning to set the immune system in terms of educating it about what matters and what doesn't matter, what's harmless, what do you ignore? And so the country kids have had a lot more exposure to things that their immune system has learned to ignore as harmless. You know, they kiss pigs and they roll in mud and they you know, have grass pollen up their nose. And, and so that was the, that's the hypothesis is that the immune system doesn't learn what it needs to ignore by just not having exposure to it. So when some city apartment dwelling kid first encounters uh, no grass pollen, its immune system goes, oh, oh, and freaks out. Now, that's okay as far as it goes, but if you go back to the original statement, kids in the city have higher rates of allergy than kids in the country. That means kids in the country have allergy too, maybe not at the same rate, but kids that have been brought up with a well-educated immune system that's had lots of exposure to animal body fluids and various organic compounds, they still get allergy. And also we see sudden allergy occurring in adults. So you'll have a guy, he's 42, he's been eating peanut butter every day of his life since he was four, and then one day they go to a Chinese restaurant and he has an anaphylactic reaction to peanuts. They're like, hang on a minute, he wasn't allergic to peanuts yesterday. And today he's so allergic that it's putting him in hospital. What is happening here? And the immune system changed its mind. But why? Why did the immune system change its mind? And so I think sort of broadly we can say if you use the military analogy of friend and foe recognition, that failing to recognise and deal with an enemy is what causes cancer and a few other diseases like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's as you get waste or junk protein that should be dealt with by the body and it doesn't recognize it and doesn't deal with it. Uh, then we have autoimmune disease, that's friendly fire. And so the immune system is attacking cells that are actually healthy. So it's failing to recognize the receptors on the cell surface that say, hey, you know, we're friendly. And somehow it doesn't recognize that. And, and then on the other hand, we have allergy where harmless substances are identified as enemy. And so there's a core there, and the core is about the immune system making bad decisions. And if we take a step back from that, you go, did you just say the immune system makes decisions? Well, yes, clearly it does, because it can't make bad decisions unless it's making decisions. And so the immune system makes decisions. Wow. Like, you know, we, don't, we don't have anywhere in our physiology the idea of the body 
making decisions. And yet that experience of the what happens when things go wrong, it should tell us, well, yes, the body can choose. The body can make decisions. That alone is like a, a revolution in physiology because we just don't, in mainstream physiology, we don't even have that idea. And yet it seems, uh, to my mind, that seems pretty obvious that you can't have a body making decisions, making bad decisions unless it is making decisions. I love where this is going because then I imagine that you've mapped your Chinese medicine lens on top of this medical physiology lens to go, well, okay, the decision-making aspect and the friendly fire aspect of autoimmune disease and the making mistakes aspect of allergic response. How have you mapped your Chinese medicine understanding on top of these perspectives? Well, I've reached the point where I'm convinced that every attempt to theoretically frame allergy that I've seen in Chinese medicine is wrong. Unfortunately, I can't tell you what's right because I don't understand it yet. So I've seen people tell, say it's deficiency. And so one fairly common thing you'll see in a few journals, articles, and a few books is allergic rhinitis has three patterns, lung deficiency, spleen deficiency, kidney deficiency. I saw 151 people in our study and I didn't see any, any deficiency anywhere, not once. And so the fact that the immune system is overreacting, that's fullness to me. That's not deficiency. You've got this overreaction. It's not an underreaction. And so when we talk about Wei Qi deficiency, we, we have a fairly specific meaning for that. We mean people catch colds easily. Uh, Wei Qi Butsu, Wei Qi without a leg to stand on, literally. Wei Qi without a leg to stand on is, is catches colds easily. So if we translate that into biomedicine, then that's about mucosal immune response. And that means that the in mucosal immunity, it's not very efficient. Uh, and that is things probably like lysozyme and complement and various other native parts of the innate immune system. So again, if you want to put that into the military analogy, that's your border scouts. They're not supposed to be doing battle. They're not supposed to be taking on a regiment of tanks. They're just there to let you know that there's been a problem. And so they communicate to the rest of the immune system, hey, guys, we've got a problem here. And so catching coals easily means that that process of early recognition of uh, an invasion and calling in the troops to deal with it, that isn't very efficient. So that's catches coals easily. That's way too deficiency. But that's not a trigger-happy sentry, and that's not friendly fire. It's none of those things. And so as I see it, we need to grow our theory and develop new theories that can somehow frame friendly fire or you know, trigger happy sentry or whatever. And some of that's going to be about Wei Qi and some of it's going to be more about Zheng Qi because Zheng Qi is more about the sort of the global immune response, you know, the good guys versus the bad guys, the Zheng Qi versus the Xie Qi, but it's a lot broader than mucosal immunity. Wei Qi is very much about what we'd call mucosal immunity. And that also means it's about illness that essentially enters through the nose and through the mucosa of the nose, the stuff you, you know, inhaling. Uh, and so that's, you know, all your colds, your flus, your COVID and anything else that's caught through an aerosol route. So that's our job is to frame that. And we haven't done it yet. And I, I, I don't know how to do that. All I'm clear on is deficiency ain't it. It's not deficiency. 
And the other thing I've seen in some books is they talk about wind-cold invasion. And I'm absolutely clear that that is wrong. And the reason for that's very simple. The receptor that mediates allergic rhinitis is called transient receptor potential vanilloid 1, trip B1. Trip B1 reacts to capsaicin. And that's why police use capsicum sprays. It's the specific ligand. It's the specific substance that that receptor is going to be activated by. And so the spray capsicum spray in your face, the capsaicin sets off the trip B1 and you get instant allergic rhinitis. The nose runs, blocks up, the eyes run, everything itches and you feel terrible. And so that's you know, instant allergic rhinitis in a spray can. And in terms of temperature, if you're hitting 40 degrees plus and your nose starts to run and you start to sneeze, that's trip V1. And so that's the same receptor as allergy. If you walk into a supermarket and when you start walking through the freezer section, you start to sneeze, that's trip A1, which is the receptor that responds to low temperature. That's a different type of rhinitis. That's a vasomotor rhinitis. It's not allergic at all. Now, it is possible that people can have both at the same time. That is possible. But when you're strictly talking allergic rhinitis, allergic rhinitis in its pure form does not respond to cold temperature. And so wind cold patent, gone. That's, that's just wrong. So in the uncomfortable position of having crossed off all of the above and being left with nothing and still not knowing what it is, I know what it's not, but I don't know what it is. And so what I can say is we've got more work to do on that and a working theory for allergy is not yet available in, in Chinese medicine. Mm. But it sounds like there might be some heat in there as part of a compound diagnosis of some sort. Well, you know, there's always heat and inflammation. And so, you know, rubel, calor, dolo, tumor, you know, the good old four characteristics from Celsus the Roman, not Galen the Greek, because it would have been Greek if it, if it had been Galen, no, it was Celsus. And so that's why we've got our four characteristics of inflammation are in Latin. So heat, uh, redness, uh, pain, and swelling. Yeah. So the heat and the redness, yeah, that, that's, that's hot. And, and in terms of processes, basically you've got inflammatory pain, you've got swelling, and then you've got heat and redness. And heat and redness are all about vasodilation. And so the reason something gets hot or red is because the local blood vessels have dilated and more blood has come into the area. That's why it's red. That's why it's hot. Mm. And then you've got inflammatory pain and then you've got swelling. And swelling is a different process. That's, that's HPA axis. That's a hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. And that's, that's really clear. We know that. That's, that's what causes the swelling. And so we know that acupuncture and allergic rhinitis modulates the HPA axis and it modulates trip V1 because otherwise we wouldn't get the outcomes we get. Mm. Sham acupuncture in our study, at least, also modulated HPA axis because sham acupuncture also improved the nasal congestion, but not the sneezing, not the runny nose, uh, not the itchy eyes, the itchy palate, the itchy nose, none of that, which is all trip V1. So the good news is that despite not having a clear Chinese medicine diagnosis to work with, you've still got the outcomes from the study where there was a difference between the sham acupuncture and the real acupuncture group. Is that right? That's right, yeah. So 
in a nutshell, the real acupuncture moderated both the TRIP V1 and the HPA axis, the sham acupuncture modulated only the HPA axis. So the, the other thing about the study that I found surprising was that the number of people that had real acupuncture who thought it was sham and the number of people that had sham acupuncture that thought it was real was exactly the same number. Wow. Oh, damn, I thought I was a bad liar. <laughs> 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 you know, I fooled people without intending. So there you go. There you go. And you published that a couple of years ago. Yes, yes. That was, we had three publications from the study. So the first two were review articles on the anti-inflammatory effects of acupuncture. Uh, and then the third one was the results of the study. And that was in Annals of Allergy, Aspirin Immunology. And that made me really happy because the whole point of doing the study was to be read by allergy specialists. It wasn't for acupuncturists. There's nothing in there that acupuncturists probably didn't already know. But I really wanted allergy specialists to see that because I wanted to show them this is how it works. Because if you show people how it works, they forget to ask you if it works. And so I'm so sick of that, like, if it works uh, question. So you just ignore that question, step past and go, well, actually, this is how it works. And they go, oh, so that's, that's how it works. And then they forget to ask if it works because it's real, it's tangible, and in terms they can understand, in terms they're familiar with. And so what's the response been from the allergy specialist community to your publication? It's been mixed. And so in the United States, in the, I'm just trying to remember the full name, it's quite complicated. It's a sort of otolaryngology head and neck surgery foundation. Uh, in their clinical practice guidelines, they list acupuncture as an option for people that prefer a non-pharmacologic, yeah, I hate that, but, but the Americans always say non-pharmacologic, not non-pharmacological. Yeah, yeah I'm a grown Nazi, I admit. So non-pharmacologic option, acupuncture is, is recommended and it appears to be effective and safe. Uh, they, they don't get too excited about the, the level of confidence, some moderate level of confidence I think they, they list it as, but recommended in the main guidelines coming out of the community that deals with, with allergic rhinitis. In Australia, around the same time, we had a massive report uh, labelled allergy not to be sniffed at. or you know, some terrible pun like that. And I think it was something like 114 pages and the word acupuncture was not included in their review at all. So they apparently systematically and comprehensively reviewed every treatment option for allergy and somehow completely missed any studies on allergy, uh, on acupuncture and allergy in their, in their search. So I found that quite remarkable. So I, I kind of read that as fairly convincing evidence to suggest strong bias. And even the allergy specialist that was in our team was quite dismissive of acupuncture when we first started. I remember the very first meeting we had uh, Professor Alan Cripps, who was the, the leader of the study, is a, uh, an immunologist with sort of, you know, 30 something years of publishing and thousands of papers. Highly decorated. Pro Vice Chancellor of Health at Griffith at the time. Yeah. Lovely man, delightful man, and incredibly intelligent, and you know, one of those amazing brains. Anyway, he was heading the study and, and the allergy specialist had, was joining us for the first time and was saying, well, you know, we'll look at these cytokines. And, and the allergy specialist said, Oh, and those cytokines are a bit, uh, bit passe, aren't they? You know, they're a bit 1990s. And 
without missing a beat and without getting upset at all. He just said, oh, really, Pete, and just rubbed them off the whiteboard. I said, so what would you suggest? And, and wrote up Pete's suggestions instead. And uh, in the same meeting, he said, oh, well, you know, they'll probably all just turn out to be, you know, competing diffuse noxious stimulation. And uh, diffuse, uh, Pete, that's, um, isn't, that, isn't that a bit 1970s? That's Milzak and Wall. <laughs> <laughs> The next time we met, he said, oh, look, I'm, I owe you an apology. He said, I, no, what, what I really meant was even if this is a complete failure, we might get some usable data. Oh, that was an apology. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's a very backhanded apology. So, so I, I couldn't resist that. I said, well, actually, I owe you an apology too. I, I said Pain Gate was very 1970. It was actually 1967. My apologies. <laughs> 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 yeah, he wasn't at any stage sort of overly excited about acupuncture. I think that his practice, which is the busiest allergy practice on the Gold Coast, I don't think they're referring too many people to acupuncturists. And so I think there's still a, a very pharmacologically oriented mindset there amongst allergy specialists. So are we being taken seriously? In some countries, yes. Uh, he, no. Mm. We like things the way that they are here in Australia a lot of the time, unfortunately. Yeah. Mm. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's sort of you know something weird like, you know, that people with conservative personalities are drawn to allergy. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, the allergy specialists here do seem to be, you know, amongst the most conservative of, of medicos. Well, it kind of fits that metal type personality, doesn't it? The, the super conservative, very... You know, they like precision, they like things that are, I don't know how I would even explain it, but I know that our listeners understand what I what I mean when I say that metal type personality. Oh, yes. Yeah. So we've had a brief understanding of your first learnings of what acupun- that acupuncture existed. Yes. And we, we have an understanding of of where you've gotten to so far in your career, where you've had, um, you know, you've achieved your PhD and you've published a study on allergic rhinitis. What happened in between? Uh, well, what happened after I said, uh, far out, man, got to know more about that, is we asked where the book came from that had been brought to the Tai Chi class. And he said, I got it from this chiropractor bloke who has just come back from England where he did a course. I said, wow, would he be interested in teaching us what he learned? He said, I don't know, I'll ask him. And a couple of weeks later, there we were in someone's lounge room uh, with a kid's blackboard in the corner and Russell Jew was teaching us acupuncture. And after a year of one night a week, sort of gypsying around different people's lounge rooms in that sort of circle of friends, he declared that we'd finished and he gave us each a packet of 10 needles and said, go out there and treat all your friends and relatives. It's the only way you'll learn. And we said, Russell, um, could we watch you put a needle in, perhaps? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, of course, of course, of course. Boyd, please take your shirt off and lie down on the floor. So Boyd lay down on the floor and Russell got these one-inch needles and put them in bladder 23. So see, that's it. That's that's all there is to it. Oh, okay. So that was our 780 hours of supervised clinical training. And so off we went. <laughs> uh, kind of makes you sort of quake now and you sort of, look at it yes we, we did we went and you know, treated our friends and relatives and then started charging people and opening clinics and stuff like that so my first um i was a psychiatric nurse at the time 
and I was, I was still in in training when I did that course with, with Russell. And my first occasion where I was actually treating people was at the Drug Dependency Service in Sydney. And so a colleague and I, who was a, a GP, who was also studying acupuncture with Russell at the time, decided to approach the, the health department and offer a narcotic withdrawal program using ear acupuncture with electro, which is what we'd read up in a paper by Wen and Chung from Hong Kong because they had published in 1973 and said, hey, we accidentally found out that if you stick a needle in the lung point and the ear and stimulate them with 125 hertz alternating, that nothing will happen for 20 minutes. At the end of 20 minutes, all the signs and symptoms of narcotic withdrawal will disappear. And so we did that. And we did that for a year, six months there and six months in a private clinic. Over that period of time, we would have seen about probably 250-odd people. and that's exactly what happened on almost every occasion that you know, nothing happened for 20 minutes and after 20 minutes, the signs and symptoms disappeared. We had no idea what was going on. We just knew it worked. There was a guy in Lincoln Hospital in the Bronx, Michael O. Smith. He was working with other practitioners who kind of got airbrushed out of the history because they were Black Panthers. Uh, so it was actually the Black Panthers that developed the uh, narcotic uh, withdrawal program initially. And Michael O. Smith, as the psychiatrist at the hospital that was working with them, um, became the, the face of it and the, the Black Panthers sort of disappeared out of the, the narrative. He was also using the Wen and Chung originally. And then over time, he developed that to his five-point protocol that became the NADA protocol. But he started out doing exactly what we were doing. We found on about, I think it was four occasions, that somebody didn't get complete alleviation of all signs and symptoms. So they might have still been a bit nauseous or some other symptom. And so we added a couple of body points, but only four times. And that was like 250 people who, in theory, were each being treated nine times, although not everybody turned up for all their treatments. So nine times over three days. So every eight hours for, for three days. How important was the e-STEM in that treatment protocol, do you believe? I believe it was absolutely vital because it took a long time because at the, at the time we're treating, no one had even imagined that there was such a thing as an endogenous opioid. Nobody imagined the body could produce its own opioid-like substances. So it was just, well, that was like science fiction. Yeah. And it wasn't until 1998 that it was finally established that what was happening was dynorphins because it was 125 hertz. So when beta endorphin was discovered and we, we saw it had a, a, an, an induction time of 20 minutes. We went, oh, that's it. It's beta endorphin. We're wrong because beta endorphins produced at low frequency, like around four hertz, but we were doing 125 hertz. So what we were doing was dynorphins and that was going to the kappa receptors, which are in the spine, not in the brain. And that really surprised everyone. We kind of went, oh, like that's not even in the brain, that's in the spine. But essentially, the withdrawal symptoms were caused by a lack of stimulus of the opioid receptors by an opioid. And so we were generating an endogenous opioid, which was occupying those receptors, and they're all shutting up to stop screaming. But it was 1998 before somebody actually established that uh, in, a, in a study. And so in the interim, we're just doing what worked. And with the NADA protocol, are people mostly doing that without the e now? 
Yes. And does it have the same effectiveness or is it different or? I don't know, but there was an interesting development there. So we started, Michael A. Smith started off with the same points we were doing, the same ESTIM. And so in that clinic, because it was a community style clinic, they had one ESTIM machine on the table and six sets of leads. And so they put people in chairs around the table in a circle so that the leads would reach. And then they reached a point where they couldn't keep replacing the batteries because those original machines used to take these massive, great bloody nine volt batteries, they're quite expensive. So they ran out of money to buy the batteries. So the East End machine went away and the leads went away. And now you've got everybody sitting around with their points in around a table. And then they couldn't really understand what the table was doing there. It wasn't really contributing anything. So they took the table away. <laughs> so you've still got people, they always have their nada sitting around in a circle on chairs and no one knows why. <laughs> well, that's why, because originally it was so that the leads would reach from the East End machine on the table in the middle. <laughs> so I have a sneaky suspicion. I, I have no idea if this is true or not, but it's uh, uh, maybe, maybe William Blake used to call it a memorable fancy. And so my memorable fancy is that Michael O. Smith developed a five-point protocol because he wanted the five-element schools to embrace what he was doing. That may be completely wrong, but that's my hypothesis. Uh, and then once the five-point protocol was embedded and spread, he did a lot of legwork, uh, to his credit, lobbying justice departments and prosecutors and uh persuading them to create diversion programs so that when people were convicted of a drug offence, the judge would give them the option of prison or NADA. And a lot of them chose NADA. And so that caused the NADA protocol to grow. One of the unfortunate things that happened there, I think, was that because you had a lot of people being trained just in the ear acupuncture protocol, and, and that was all, that what often happens when people have a very limited protocol is their sense of its scope of practice gets gets bigger and bigger. And so people started saying things like the NIDA protocol gets people off drugs. And that wasn't what it was for at all. It was, it was for acute withdrawals. That was it. But the, the statements started being made, this is getting people off drugs. And every time people did studies on it, they found that that wasn't very impressive at all. They weren't getting people off drugs. Because the question being asked, the research question being asked was fundamentally silly, is does sticking these needles in someone's ear cause them to decide to change their entire lifestyle? Well, no, acupuncture doesn't do that. Why should it? That's, that's just a whole series of pretty important decisions being made by the individual. And so acupuncture isn't a way to make people decide something. That's, that's a nonsense. And so it's a, it's a much more complex issue than that. And so I think that was kind of overselling uh, what that treatment could do. And I, I think that's not been helpful. If you ask a different question, which is if somebody is in a drug rehabilitation program and they are seeking to become drug-free, does acupuncture have anything to offer? Then the answer is completely different. The answer is yes, it's got a lot to offer in that context. And I can help with many of the chronic problems that people have when they're coming off drugs, like uh, low back pain, like constipation, like low libido, like all sorts of things. And so there's lots of things there that acupuncture can help with. But the point is, it's not the acupuncture that's causing people. 
to make that decision. People are making that decision on their own. And having made that decision, acupuncture can help them in many ways. But I, I think that it's unhelpful to suggest that acupuncture is going to make people quit drugs. I mean, acupuncture can't make people buy yellow Camrys. It can't make people uh, select a particular brand of, of anything. Uh, it, that's, not what, that's not what we do. Well, and similar to um, quitting smoking, you know, so many of us have fielded phone calls and inquiries from potential patients. Can you help me quit smoking? You know, and those of us who've been doing this for long enough, we know that we can't make anyone do anything. Once they've chosen to quit, we can support them, but we can't make them want to quit. So there's the difference is, is in, within two sentences you went from can you help people quit smoking or can you make people quit smoking? And there's the difference. No, we can't make people quit smoking, but we can help people who are quitting smoking, but the quitting smoking is on them. And, and so I, I think that it's important for us to, to be very clear about that and you know, like to say to people, you know, okay, so you want to quit smoking. I'm happy to help you. When you win, it's your win. It's not my win. So I didn't do it. You did it. And so uh, be very clear that this is, this is a decision that you've made and you're the one that's going to carry it through. And when you have succeeded, it's your success. The acupuncture didn't do it for you. We, we just helped you a bit. And uh, uh, I mean, one, one reason people have quit smoking treatments is because they don't want to quit smoking, but they need to mollify someone who's badgering them, often a partner, sometimes a child. Uh, actually, children badgering parents to give up smoking is often more persuasive than a partner. So I'm here to go through the gestures of failing to quit smoking but pretending that that's what I'm doing because that'll get this person off my case because then I can say, well, honey, I tried. Uh, and so that's that's another element in that kind of like quit smoking thing. But, uh, yeah, I think it's important that we, we recognise that. Um, I'm not sure that it happens all the time, but one of the things around quit smoking I remember in the early days was that once people that had their ear acupuncture treatment for quit smoking that uh, cigarettes would taste a bit like cow dung and I even sort of you know said to a person you know like you know so did your cigarettes taste like cow dung so only the first three so, <laughs> so like you know if somebody's prepared to, to you know smoke three cow dung cigarettes then I don't think they're terribly serious about giving up smoking they just want to push through that yeah I'm loving this history of um, how you've witnessed the unfolding of Chinese medicine while well, in a, in Australia and in and in your experience. So you you were a psychiatric nurse in training, and you did a one year course in lounge rooms across your city. Yeah. Um, during which time you graduated without having ever punctured anyone with a needle. Yes. Then you made your way to establishing a practice via treating family and friends and starting a clinic, and you were an early adopter of ear acupuncture with e-stim for supporting narcotic withdrawal. Yes. What, what came next? Well, that was like 1975, 76 was, was the period where for six months we were, we're at drug dependency service. We 
we didn't get funding, so we were using a government desk with a yoga mat on it for a treatment table. They wouldn't buy us proper treatment tables. The, the needles were not being supplied either. We are buying our own needles. And so the GP said, look, why don't we just move out into a private clinic and set that up? We can still keep doing the work we're doing, but uh, we'll put people through Medibank bulk billing. And, and that way we can still provide free treatment to these people and we can have a general acupuncture practice as well. And so we did that. And after uh, working together for about six months, I had an opportunity to go to an acupuncture congress in Argentina. And so the plan was to go to Argentina to this conference and then travel on an open data ticket for a year, going around South America, through Central America, up through North America to Canada, and then come back through Hawaii. That wasn't quite what happened, uh, but that's that was the plan. So I went to Argentina, did the conference. There was another conference nearby, also in Argentina, a short time away from the other one. So I went to both conferences. And then after I left Buenos Aires, I went up to Rio. And after I'd only been in Rio a couple of days, I was talking to some people about the northern, uh, northeastern city of Salvador de Bahia. Well, Salvador de Bahia, Toro Santos do Brasil, was the full name of the city. So people usually called it either Salvador or Bahia. So I went up to Salvador because they were starting their festival season. And so they were having the Festa de Concesão, which was the first of the festivals. And they were kind of, most of them had a kind of a religious aspect to them. And there was, you know, there'd be a, kind of like a church at each end and there'd be a procession or something or other in the middle. So it included things like having a, a procession of boats on New Year's Day go out to the heads and throw flowers into the water. And the the Catholics would all call that a uh, an adoration of the Virgin. And the cult house people would all call that gifts to Yamaja, goddess of the sea. But they'd do it together. It's kind of a thing you don't see too many places. You had all the Afro-Brazilian cult people and all the priests together doing doing rituals together and doing these festivals together. So um, I decided to go to Salvador to catch Concesão and I finished up staying there for three and a half months all the way through to Carnival. Came back to Rio. Rio after Carnival is just dead. Everyone's just walking around like zombies. And so it just didn't feel very nice. I think I'll push on and go on to Bolivia. So I just kept travelling, got as far as Peru. And um, my erstwhile partner who hadn't paid me for six months, had decided that he didn't owe me anything and he ripped up all the records and left town. Uh, so I had to come back from Lima. I just had to come come straight back instead of sort of continuing on the trip. So I came back. I'd been six months in South America and I had $20 and no job and no clinic. So for the first time in my life, I went to an what was what is we now would call Centrelink, and applied for unemployment benefit, and they said, "Oh, you're a registered nurse. We get a job for you." And so the next day, I started started back at nursing, and then I moved to part time nursing and part time clinic, and part time teaching. So by but the, actually the year that I came back from South America, I started teaching the Van Buren Bachelor course at Russell's College was a new course. And I was one of the lecturers in that. So 1977 was when I started teaching. So I was teaching, had a small practice and did part-time nursing. And I kept kind of moving in and out of nursing 
every time I was in a position where I didn't have a clinic. So, for example, when I first came from Sydney to the Gold Coast, didn't have a clinic and it was on college breaks. There was no teaching at the time. So I went back to nursing and then sort of part-time nursing, uh, teaching practice, and then eventually established a practice more solidly, did a lot of teaching, did a fair bit of kind of educational admin. So 1998, the college in Brisbane, which was then Australian College of Natural Medicine, was going for accreditation of a bachelor. So I did a lot of the writing of that bachelor course and defended it to the uh, educational authorities and the CAP panel. Then they started a branch on the Gold Coast. And uh, so then I was teaching in the Gold Coast in Brisbane. I was doing a lot of teaching and a little bit of practice. And uh, by then, no nursing. Uh, yeah, then I had the opportunity to do, well, had a contact from David Legg, who had originally been one of my students. And then after he graduated and I was dean uh, of a college in Sydney, I hired him as a lecturer, also Jane Littleton. She was a student and then I hired her as a lecturer. And um, some years later, it was 2005, uh, David Legg contacted me and said, look, we're putting a master's together at University of Western Sydney and I'm coordinating the, the like acupuncture unit. So I'd like you to do some lectures for us. And so I was, yeah, yeah, sure. So we agreed on a number of topics that I was going to lecture, but it meant traveling to Sydney four times a year to, to do these lectures. And that was for over two years. And I realized that I was going to be traveling to Sydney four times a year for two years. And at the end of it, I wasn't going to have a master's, but all the people I was teaching were. And I don't like that idea. So I said, hey, David, can I enroll in this thing? And he said, yeah, sure. So I did. So some days I was a student and I wore my regulation student jeans. And on other days I was a lecturer, so I wore my business dress. Uh, so that that kind of helped me to keep clear about my roles on the day. And I think it probably helped my classmates to be clear about when I was a student, when I was a lecturer. And so at the end of that, I graduated with my master's. And um, in the second year of the master's, I started casting around looking for a PhD. So I started off looking to history professors. Uh, uh, history professors original, that were interested in original history in Australia and I wanted to write a PhD on the history of acupuncture in Australia. That didn't happen. And then one day a, a friend who was a business lecturer at Griffith said, look, um, I think you should come and talk to the Pro Vice-Chancellor of Health as a, a lecture on being given by a Nobel laureate, so he'll definitely be there. So if you turn up for that lecture at Griffith, I'll, I'll make sure you get introduced to him. Sounds good. So I went along to the lecture and I was introduced to him and I said, uh, Professor Cripps, I have an interest in doing a PhD at your university in the effects of acupuncture on the immune system. And he immediately gave me this intense look and whipped out of business cards. I want to talk to you. I didn't know he was an immunologist. It was just, it was just like so lucky. It was one of those serendipities. And so he said to his wife, who was standing next to him, he said, um, look, I'm, I'm going to be away overseas for a couple of weeks, but when I come back, I want to talk to you. And then he said to his wife, make sure my secretary puts him through when he rings. And she said, yeah, yeah, yeah I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. So then I went to see him at his office and I took him a, an executive summary with, with a, a pile of, of references. 
one-page executive summary of the pile of references showing that acupuncture had been shown to modulate the immune system. And so I looked at that, looked through the references, and he said, gee, there's a few journals here I'm not familiar with. Have you got hard copies? I said, yeah, sure. So deliver them to my office. So I did. And next time we met, he had the pile of, of hard copies there, and he had highlighter all the way through them. I said, look, I've got a few questions. You know, Is there any evidence that acupuncture can do this? Is there any evidence acupuncture do that? Any evidence acupuncture do this? And yes, no, don't know. That hasn't been done yet. He said, right, okay. So it's clear that acupuncture modulates the immune system and we have evidence of that. Why didn't somebody tell me? So I've been an immunologist for 31 years and nobody has ever told me that acupuncture modulates the immune system. And I want to know more about that. Okay. Great. He said, look, I have lots of people I pay to supervise my PhD students. He said, I'm, I'm doing this one myself. I, I, I want to supervise this. I want to know exactly what's going on here. Uh, I, want to, I want to know the answers to these questions too. And he said, so we just need a, a model, something. He said, uh, don't go near cancer too hard with, with ethics committees. You know, he's got to jump through hoops. No, leave the land. Allergic rhinitis. Very poorly treated by mainstream medicine. I didn't know at the time his wife had bad allergic rhinitis. It was very poorly treated. Very poorly treated in mainstream medicine. And so if acupuncture can affect that, then uh, then we put the team together. So we brought in the allergy specialist. And then we invited um, Carolyn Smith from Western Sydney and Charlie Shway from RMIT because he'd already done a few studies on, on allergic rhinitis. He couldn't actually come onto the grant team because he had too many already with RMIT, with the NHMRC. So he came on as a, I think he was a external supervisor, I think was, was his official title. And then Alan said, oh, have you got anybody from an overseas university, you know, like a prestigious overseas university would be helpful, makes us look good on the grant. I said, how about Stanford? He said, oh, perfect. So as it happened, when I was in Japan in uh, 2006, doing the WHO Western Pacific Region Office point location standard. Uh, I was the Australian rep on that for that particular meeting. And uh, I'm, there I met Brenda, Brenda Galliano, who was an associate professor from Stanford. And she worked as a paediatric anesthesiologist. And she'd been doing acupuncture on kids for years at the Lucille Picard Hospital on the campus of Stanford University. And we had long conversations about all sorts of things. And one of the things I, we talked about was the work that I'd done on narcotic withdrawal. And she said, oh, look, I said, I'm dealing with these kids all the time that are born to addicted mothers and we have to withdraw them. So if I could do that without the drugs, that'd be, that'd be sweet. She said, if, this might even get me back into the lab with the rat. She said, I, you know, I really think I'm going to have to research this. If I do that, w- will you help me? I said, yeah, sure, sure. So I contacted Brenda and said, look, you know, uh, I know I said I'd help you with your research. Would you, know, would you help me with my research? And so, yeah, sure. So that was the team. And so I was the only person on the team that wasn't a professor. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, we were from like, you know, uh, one, two, three, four different universities. I mean, like if I'd put together an A-team hand-picked, I couldn't have picked better. And so I thought, wow, you know, like this is so good. And then... I had to start learning immunology really, really quickly. And uh, that was a very steep learning curve. I was so out of my depth when I started. And I just had to read all this stuff about 
immunology and get my head around it and uh, produced two review articles uh, that were published in peer-reviewed journals on anti-inflammatory effects of acupuncture, the first one. On the second one, I had included some anti-hyperalgesia papers. And so the editor said, uh-uh, got to change the title. So that then became mediators, receptors, and signaling pathways in the anti-inflammatory and anti-hyperalgesic effects of acupuncture. Because uh, hyperalgesia is, is inflammatory pain sensitivity. So it's increased pain sensitivity. So there's two main types. There's mechanical allodynia, which is experiencing light touch is painful. So being so sensitive that even light touches is, is, is experiences pain and thermal hyperalgesia, which is experiencing even slight heat as, as burning pain. And so that's that was the second uh, review. And then we published the results of the study when we were done. So it took me three years of the treatment phase. So the whole thing took me nine years. So the took two years just to get accepted as a candidate and get funded and and then seven years to actually do all the work. So three years was the the actual clinical practice and uh, it took two years to write up and do all the stats and and then another two years to finish and submit and get the thesis accepted and publications. So yeah, that was a that was a lot of work, really a lot of work. But I was very happy that I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to do it and and do it with a, a stellar team. Huh? So in the in the middle of that was a 2015, which was just just as as we were published, sort of getting towards the the end of publishing. I did a poster at the Society for Acupuncture Research conference at Harvard Medical School. And I thought I was there by myself, but then I ran into Carolyn Smith in the cafeteria. And while I was talking to Carolyn Smith, up 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 popped Brenda Galliano. <laughs> <laughs> so we had half our team there for the poster, which was which was just wonderful. And also I met sort of many of my research heroes. Ted Cuptrook was there, but he didn't remember meeting me. I'd, I'd met him in Sydney some years earlier. He didn't didn't know me from a bar, so couldn't didn't recognise me clearly. But uh, Hugh McPherson and um, Richard Harris, uh, uh, Ryan Milley, they're just just uh, it was it was hog heaven. I was just kind of like surrounded by acupuncture royalty, and and got to meet them and talk to them, and I just had such a ball. It was a lot of fun. I'd, more really interesting conversations in three days at that conference than I usually have in a year. And um, boy, did I enjoy that. It was wonderful. Fabulous. Yeah. That sounds delightful. Yeah, and the, the Ted Kupchuk got a, a lifetime award for his contributions to acupuncture research, and he gave a speech that sounded a lot like, don't cry for me, Chinese medicine. The truth is I never left you. <laughs> a few people kind of got a bit dark with with Ted because they said he'd sort of gone to the dark side because he'd he, he was spending all these days researching placebo instead of researching acupuncture. But he was quite adamant that he'd he'd never left us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's um, that's quite a controversy. There's some um, some very passionate opinions about the the way that he has deviated in his career yeah well i 
I think probably one of the most significant things that he's done recently was this, the stuff that he did uh, as part of a team on the placebo, because that, that to me is the, the last nail in the coffin of the idea that placebo-controlled trials have any scientific value at all. Because, I mean, a lot of people just conveniently ignore the fact that if you ask the question, what is the size of the placebo effect in any particular study? The answer, by looking at different studies and compiling them, is it's somewhere between zero and 100%. But that's not science. That's nonsense. And so you get this person saying it's 33%, that person saying it's 46%, this person saying it's 90%, and they're all based on studies. So the only conclusion that any sensible person can reach is there's something desperately wrong with the way this is being measured or people are measuring different things. But to say placebo is a solid known baseline that we can use in a study to compare unknowns to, that's errant nonsense. It's, it's an unknown compared to an unknown, which is completely useless in science. And so it's not a solid baseline. Then Ted Kaptchuk published a paper in which he said, evidence for a consistent or reliable placebo responder is methodologically very weak. And so you have the idea that a person will respond to a placebo one day and the following day, exactly the same placebo, they won't respond to it. And a person might respond to a placebo for caffeine but they have no response to a placebo for alcohol. So having observed that, he then, he and a team went on to look at correlations between gene, seed genes and placebo responses. And they found that if you have these seed genes, that correlates with you getting intoxicated by placebo alcohol. If you don't have those seed genes, placebo alcohol have no effect on you. If you've got these seed genes, you will get stimulated by placebo caffeine. If you don't have those genes, no effect. And so unless you're actually going to do a genetic profile of every person in a study, doing a placebo study is, is absolutely useless. You have no idea because you're going to have some people in there that have got the genes that will predispose them to react. And then, of course, is the epigenetics. We haven't even gone to the epigenetics yet. We've only looked at the genes. Well, there's still, there's still so much about epigenetics that we don't even know. Until recently, we thought that 95% of our DNA was junk. Yeah. And it's only just recently that we've begun to question, well, maybe it's not junk, maybe it actually does something. And we've identified that we know it does something, we just don't know what yet. And so the world of genetics is just, it's in such infancy. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it started off with, you know, nature or nurture, sort of like back in the 50s. You know, is it all about nature or nurture? So you had all those identical twin studies and all that stuff. I remember doing that in psychology back at Sydney Uni in the early 70s. And, um, and now it turns out it's genes as they're affected by the environment and the environment. So you sort of, you know, it's almost like a robber as you finish up you know, uh, back where you started chewing your own tail. Um, and so uh, even without looking at epigenetics, if you just take it as genetics, it means the placebo response may have a genetic determinant. And so even if you were able to produce an inert, credible placebo, 
what happens to that is going to depend on the person's genes. And so that makes it so ridiculously complicated that the idea of using it as a baseline to measure against in science is ludicrous, absolutely ludicrous. And then how does this relate to the nocebo effect? Is anyone even looking at that or do we, we don't even go there? Well, nocebo is, is as, as messy as placebo, less research on it, and, and most of it goes to anecdotes. Uh, like the guy that got trapped in the refrigerator car and froze to death, but he didn't know that the condenser was actually not working. And so he actually froze to death at room temperature. Uh, so you get those kind of like those anecdotes. Then again, you finish up with things like the folklore of, oh, well, we all know that 30% of all treatments is placebo effect. No, we don't. We don't know that at all. That's never been found, not in a single study. So where did that come from? Well, it's actually a paraphrase from the original paper, which goes right back to powerful placebo uh, back in the 1950s. And in that original paper, it said 33.6% of the population probably responds to placebo. That means only one person in three is going to have a placebo effect and the other two aren't. And so how did that ever get to be a baseline? And then again, you say, okay, so let's have a look at the studies. What is the prevalence? How many people out there are going to respond to placebo? And the answer is zero to 100%. And again, what placebo are you talking about? Which placebo? Yeah. Mm. For any sensible person that's looking at that with clear eyes, the whole idea of using a placebo in a study is a nonsense. And so the only thing that makes sense is to compare existing interventions for safety effectiveness, not efficacy, the safety, effectiveness, and cost effectiveness. That's the only thing that matters. And so head-to-head -head studies, that's really the only thing that makes sense. And then for those that have been part of the conversation on Acupuncture Research Share Group recently, uh, they will have seen that wonderful study that Mel Hopper-Koppelman brought to our attention, which showed that uh, on 1,576 different medical interventions, that 94% of them were not supported by high-quality research. It's such a devastatingly high number. 6%. 6% of all of those medical interventions were supported by high-quality research. And so here we have the Chinese Medicine Board putting out a position statement saying that we should only be using high-quality research to support our advertising. We're going like, that's only 6% in mainstream medicine. What is that in acupuncture research, which has had so much fewer papers? That's a ridiculously high bar. Like if you take that through to clinical practice guidelines, you say, okay, let's base our clinical practice guidelines on high-quality research. So, look, Doc, I've got bad news, but 94% of what you're doing now, you're going to have to stop because we don't have good enough evidence for it. Because, well, what are we going to use? And, and so if... Having high-quality research as your bar does not allow us to make sensible clinical practice guidelines. The bar is way too high. It's way too high. It's not useful. And so all of those very expensive randomised control trials and systematic reviews, I mean, when, when we did our study, the average uh, size of a grant for a single study from NHMRC was $256,000. That was 2005. Has it gone up? I very much imagine it would have. So a million bucks, you get four studies. You can't do a systematic review on four studies, so you're going to have to spend another couple of million 
That's what you got, you know, maybe 20 studies. Uh, okay, so we're now up to 5 million bucks. And that's one systematic review. But of course, to write critical practice guidelines, you've got to have consistent systematic reviews. It's like we're talking like, you know, 40 years and 100 million bucks. And at the end of it, you've got an answer you can't use. Really? Like uh, that, that just is so, so crazy that you know, even when you get to high quality research, if you ever get to high quality research, then it's not useful for guiding practice anyway. In the meantime, for that 40 years, what are we going to do? Well, uh, if you go back to Sackett, you're going to use the, the, the guy who founded evidence-based medicine as an idea. You use the best available. And so if the best available is low-quality evidence, then you pick the best of the low-quality interventions. And that's exactly what the American College of Physicians did with acute low back pain. They found the evidence quality was low, but they still gave it a strong recommendation because they said in their review of non-invasive treatments for low back pain, it was still the best treatment out there for acute low back pain with the exception of one thing, local heat. Oh, bit of moxa, eh? Well, what do you know? And so the very best thing for low back pain, acute, was moxa or, or some other form of local heat. And next best was acupuncture. And so they recommended it, strong recommendation. And for chronic low back pain, moderate evidence, strong recommendation. But there's almost nothing out there that's recommended in clinical practice guidelines, 6%. That is actually high quality research. And so I seriously think that the Chinese Medicine Board needs to revisit that statement and say something a bit more real world sensible. I agree. I agree. We, we definitely are having a hard time with our Chinese Medicine Registration Board here in Australia. They are, they're, they're very heavy handed with their expectations and guidelines and the rules of what we are and aren't allowed to say and do. Yeah, so it's uh, strictly speaking, it's APRA, the Australian Health Practitioners Regulation Agency, which is capable of disciplining people uh, for advertising that they can treat a condition for which they, they don't have what they would call adequate evidence. But unfortunately, this position paper from the Chinese Medicine Board, which is what they're uh, using as their guideline just gives us an impossibly high bar. So the number of conditions we can actually mention in advertising is so small that it's really quite frustrating. I think there's six things we can advertise. Well, again, they won't tell us outright and different inspectors are giving different judgments. And so I've just been putting together a, a webinar for Acupuncture Now Australia. And in that, I've been attempting to nuance which pain conditions uh, have what I would call adequate evidence. But even then, like on something like low back pain, for which the evidence is pretty damn strong and it's in lots of different clinical practice guidelines because of a corrupt practice uh, in the review of guidelines by NICE in England back in 2016, they not only took acupuncture out, which had already been in as a recommendation, they recommended against it without any basis, without any evidentiary basis for recommending against it. And so they said, well, we can't recommend it because it's not, it's not sufficiently superior to placebo. 
So why are you recommending massage? Oh, don't be silly. You can't do placebo massage. So we accept massage studies without placebo. Hey, silly, you can't do placebo acupuncture either. What's your problem? But there was clearly some extreme bias in that process. Mm. And so because NICE has done that, then there's some APRA inspectors going to go, oh, but the NICE guidelines recommend against it. Completely ignore the fact that some few months after that, the American College of Physicians gave it a strong recommendation and all of the other clinical practice guidelines are recommended. They'll just go to that one source, which actually is what they tell us not to do. It's called cherry picking. Mm. APRA inspectors will tell people they can't even say acupuncture is good for low back pain because they're cherry picking the NICE guidelines. I mean, NICE ironically has revised their guidelines and said they recommend acupuncture for chronic pain. But in the fine print, they also say, uh, if there's a specific guideline on the particular type of chronic pain, then use that. So it's recommended for, recommended against in the same guideline. Right, go figure. Crazy. It's crazy making stuff, trying to navigate through all of these bureaucratic hurdles that we are presented with. Yeah, well, I, I think the uh, the bottom line for me to, you know, when people ask me, you know, so what do I do? My bottom line advice is, well, hey, tell your patients what you do, but only advertise what APRA finds acceptable and, and then you won't be having problems with them. But if you try to tell the world what you do, then you're going to have big problems. And so keep your advertising very small, but that doesn't mean you have to keep your practice small. And it doesn't mean you have to tell that you can't tell your patients what you do. I'm sure that all of us have had that experience. You know, patients will come along and they go, oh, you know, is acupuncture any good for that are because they've got a friend, a relative, somebody who has that problem. And then we can tell them and we don't have to worry about APRA because we're having a conversation with the patient and that's none of their business. We're not advertising. Yeah. I've removed all therapeutic claims off my website and I just talk about the patient experience. Yeah. The sorts of things that I think are fairly safe is things like this is the number of studies of various forms of allied health compared. Here are the number of studies on acupuncture this year compared to what they have been over the last 10 years. Here is the patient satisfaction from ASH in American Specialty Health that showed that 93% of people said that they were satisfied with the treatment. Uh, and so we can use that sort of stuff. I'm still not sure how APRA views citing clinical practice guidelines. We haven't done a lot of that, but been having conversations with Chris Slowski and Stephen Birch recently because Stephen's been doing this massive project on clinical practice guidelines in Australia and going to treatment guidelines, which are things like Health Direct, which is a government website, and so that's approved by the, the Federal Health Department. And so what it says on Health Direct is advice for patients it's not for practitioners, and they don't put all the references on it. But the number of times that those sites actually recommend acupuncture is very different to what APRA tells us we're allowed to say. And so that's kind of a question there is, you know, what status does a treatment guideline or even a clinical practice guideline have as evidence that acupuncture works? Interesting. I was absolutely blown away at how many conditions he found that at some point either in the the health direct immediately or 
in sites that they recommended you go to, which they said were reliable information. The, the list of conditions there is massive. So um, he's coming to Australia shortly and we're, we're going to have some chats about he's, he's wanting to put it together as a publication with the with the usual team, Tarek Ulrich and, and um, Kim and the others. So that'll be interesting. But certainly, uh, like, the work is already done. Uh, like, at, in Paris, the number of positive recommendations for acupuncture in either clinical practice guidelines or treatment guidelines was already up to 4,300 and something Wow! back in 2018. And it was 346 different conditions. And so if we're running off clinical practice guidelines, then the size of the evidence is, is massive. It's huge. It's so reassuring to know that people like yourself and others are working on all of this in the background because there's so many of us who are just in clinic and we just treat patients and go home and come back to clinic and treat patients and then go home and and we you know so many people don't have the awareness of just how much is happening behind the scenes yeah well I'm still insatiably curious and I still kind of you know want to want to be involved in lots of stuff that's happening so there's there's lots of international cooperation. So you know, the Acupuncture Evidence Project, APRA, made very clear that they don't accept as acceptable evidence shortly after it was published, which was mainly after Friends of Science and Medicine had sent a, a blistering letter to ACMA saying that this was uh, terrible, just, just repeating a whole lot of talking points from Edzard Ernst about you know, how it was terrible that they were misleading the public by referring to this blah, 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 blah. And APRA basically took fright and decided to make a statement that that it wasn't acceptable evidence. But at an ACMAC, one in Sydney, I can't remember the year, I think it was 2018, but it was in Sydney, the, uh, a representative of APRA presented a paper explaining why the evidence project wasn't acceptable evidence. And he said they'd done a CASP assessment on it. And at the time, I'm kind of looking at it going, what? And they said, oh, you know, there was no precision. Hang on a minute. So I went back to the CASP website and, and I'm looking for precision. There's only one CASP tool that mentions precision, and that's the CASP tool for a randomised control trial. There is no CASP tool for a review of reviews. And so the assessment they did was completely invalid because they were using the wrong tool <laughs> and precision can only apply to an RCT doesn't even apply to a systematic review and so what they did was arrant nonsense and so I don't think they did it because they were silly I think they did it for political reasons they decided that they were under attack from friends of science and medicine so they would cover their posteriors by making shit up yeah yeah so uh, however that's been used all over the world. It's been used in Norway. It's been used in Canada. It's been used in, in Portugal. It's been used in Brazil. It's been used in lots of places for people advocating for acupuncture. So it's still done a power of good. It's a fabulous resource. And so that, that you know, ACMA sponsored that uh, and commissioned it in the first place. It's still very valuable. So I'm looking forward to the, the new resource, the one that uh, Amber Moore and the two researchers from Western Sydney are putting together, 
the research part of the website for, I think it's Research Centre, I think it's called. Uh, so they've started constructing it, but they haven't populated it with studies yet. So uh, you can go in there and have a look, but it's all empty folders. So they've created all the folders, but there's nothing in them yet because it's enormous amount of work. And what the idea of that is, is to uh, do an assessment using the brand new six parameters that APRA's just made up themselves for assessing studies or assessing evidence. It actually hasn't made it any easy for practitioners at all. It's made it extraordinarily complex because they've got a tool they've made up themselves instead of using any of the established tools like GRADE, for example. So you can say, oh, look, this is a low, a low risk of bias study, so it must be good. But by the time they've done their own sort of highly idiosyncratic assessment using their six parameters, got no idea where they're going to land. But what Amber Moore and her and, and the others are looking at is they're trying to use the same parameters as APRA to inform practitioners of what studies are likely to be acceptable evidence according to APRA to make it easier for them to advertise without stepping on mines. So um, uh, unfortunately, because of the way APRA works, individual inspectors, even if they're way outside their own guidelines, challenging them is, is fruitless because even when they're completely wrong, any review process will still support the decision made by the inspector rather than the than the um, appeal. So uh, you can't win fighting with APRA. So if they tell you to take something off your website, it's just much easier to just take it off and not argue with them because arguing with them doesn't get you anywhere. No, it doesn't. It's just stressful and very unfortunate that we're in the position that we're in. Yeah, well, we did get the CMBA to change the five-year rule. And so if we can just get them to take out that wording of you know, high-quality studies, that would make life perhaps a bit easier. Or even if they could agree to use a an internationally recognised standard for reviewing reviews, and that would be, you know, or, you know, to use an internationally recognised standard for their assessment of the evidence, that would be a great victory. Instead of just making up their own. I just love them to see something, uh, make some statement like, for example, if it's a peer-reviewed journal with human subjects and the study has been found in a systematic review to be a low risk of bias study on a risk of bias assessment using the grade system, then that should be acceptable evidence. That's not hard. Uh, that's really clear. But they won't do that. Mm. Also, like at, at the end of every study, every researcher will give guidance to future research. It's, it's just one of the things you're supposed to do. In your conclusions, you're always supposed to say where you think research should go next. And so there are certain APRA inspectors, every time they see further research needed, no matter how it's worded, they go, oh, it's inconclusive evidence, can't use that, which is ludicrous, absolutely ludicrous. Mm. Crazy. Crazy. Now I'm curious, John. Fifty-one years. Yes. Fifty-one years. What are what are some of the things that have changed, and what are some of the things that have stayed the same? Okay. One of the things that changed 
massively is is resources, uh, access to information. Like we started with one book, uh, one book, Felix Mann. That was it, nothing else. And then we had three books and we thought it was hog heaven. Now we got Chinese acupuncture by Wu Weiping and Japanese acupuncture by Madame Hashimoto. And we, we thought this was brilliant. And then out came the outline of Chinese acupuncture from China and we're a bit kind of confused, disappointed because it had all the TCM taken out of it. And like, what happened there? And we later found out that was a, a cultural revolution thing that um, uh, TCM theory couldn't be mentioned. And so they were talking about acupuncture without talking about TCM at all. And they created this thing called new acupuncture. And then we got essentials of Chinese acupuncture and suddenly the TCM's back. Uh, and and we got excited about that. And then the next step was people going to China and doing the three-month courses, which is what the essentials was developed for. It was developed specifically to be the text for the three-month courses in China. And then around that time, we also started getting books coming out of China and being translated, which the Chinese had never intended to translate themselves or that we ever got our hands on. And so the, for each of the university courses in the TCM colleges in, in China, they had two versions of each text. So there was the student's copy and there was the lecturer's copy. And the lecturer's copy obviously had a lot more information in it. And so the rule was supposed to be that the lecturer's copy was called Nebu, internal use only. And so foreigners were never supposed to see them or even know they existed. And so the first Nebu that, that got out was Jinjishui, which was the name of a thousand different books. They're all called you know, acupuncture text. There's a thousand of them. But the Jinjishui from Shanghai College went to the States and Dan Bensky and um, O'Connor, they translated that. But not the whole text. They took all the moxer out. Don't know why they did that. But they translated that teacher's copy, the Nebu copy. And the Chinese were furious because they had decided that they wouldn't recognise copyright, but when somebody starts breaching their copyright, they, they got really quite annoyed. And uh, then after that, lots and lots and lots of text came out of China and were translated. I, I picked up books in China in 1984 and translated them myself, and um, that's how I created Zhang Fu Syndromes uh, initially, which was published by the New South Wales College, and then later that became a a joint publication with Joel Penner in California who added all his herb material to it. So it became a, a conjoint herb and acupuncture text. And that's how that book came about and how it came to be published in California. So over the years, you know, new material came in. We got I brought back a whole stack of books in French from a conference I went to. And in that six-month trip I did to South America, I went to the conference in Argentina and met Nguyen Van Nhi and got hold of his book and the six volumes of Champro, the Traité de Médecine Chinoise, and started translating them back here. So we, that was new information. So we kept getting new information here, new information there, and then Ted Kupchuk came and Giovanni came and we had various sort of people bringing information. So Ted Kupchuk had studied in Macau. Giovanni had done one of the Nanjing three-month courses. And so we was just, just sort of getting more and more information all the time. And now there's more extraordinarily good books published in a week than we used to have in a decade back then. 
And so the quality of the material coming out, and so we kind of got to uh, modern Chinese TCM, we sort of got a pretty good handle on that and good texts on that. And then we started to move beyond that to what came before 1956. And so people started translating historical material. And now we've got a whole cadre of extraordinarily skillful translators, the sort of Leo Locks and Sabine Wilms and Lorraine Wilcoxes and Michael Browns and uh, Alan Sowers, all these, all these amazing people, Will Searles, there's, there's so many of them now that are able to, to bring to us all of that amazing historical material that came before the TCM structure. And, and so now we've, we've got an embarrassment of riches as, you know, more stuff that we can read. And, you know, if we tried to, tried to buy every book that was published, which, which we all used to do, uh, we'd be broke because uh, there's just so many marvellous books these days. You've got to be really selective and go, oh, I'd love to buy that. Oh, I'd like to buy that. I'd like, no, I'd better just pick that one. <laughs> and you've got three, three books that are published at the moment. Uh, yeah, well, I've got the three volumes of Acupuncture Point Dynamics. Sung Fu Syndromes is still in print. The only place the hardcover is still available is Red Wing in the States. They're the only ones that still have it. So there's still a PDF that's being distributed coming out of California from Joel's daughter. And then there's the three volumes of Acupuncture Point Dynamics. So that was, that was another big project. I started that in 1980. And I finished volume one and two in 2020 during COVID lockdown. So Shakespeare wrote King Lear and Newton discovered gravity and I finished volume one and two in in, in plague lockdown. 40 uh, years in the making. Yeah. So what that was was I took 10 source texts and tried to get as broad a range as I could. So uh, Japan, Korea, Vietnam, various provinces of China, uh, texts in French, texts in Chinese, texts in English. And what I wanted to know was where was the consensus about point indications? And so I did a, a blend of those those 10 books and then organised it. So it, it was pretty clear that uh, there was a lot of consensus about what the main indications for each of the major points were. I didn't know all the points because I would have taken from hundred years, uh, I did the main points. And they, that was based on what these source texts identified as the main points. And uh, you can see the consensus there. And so basically what that gives us, it's a bit like levels of confidence in systematic reviews. And so if 10 out of 10 sources name this indication as the first and most primary indication, you can be pretty damn sure that that point will pretty reliably most of the time treat that condition effectively, treat that symptom effectively. And because nothing is lost, right down the bottom are the indications that only one person put their hand up for out of the 10 sources. But they're still there. There's nothing missed. So every systematic review starts with an anecdote. And so sometimes just hearing somebody tell you a story about something they treated and got a good result with, and you go like, wow, that's that's really useful. I'm going to try that. And that can at times be 
more useful than any systematic review you've ever read. And so no information's lost in that process. So it's not a standardizing process. It's just critically evaluating and drawing out the consensus and kind of layering it. So this is the stuff there's most agreement on. So at the top of the page is the ones that all 10 out of 10 put their hand up for. And then there's the ones that are only four sources mentioned. And then the ones that are only three sources mentioned and so forth until you come to the single opinions uh, at the bottom of the page. And so I really wanted to know what that looked like. And that's why I did it. Uh, I wanted to see it for myself. And then having seen it for myself, I thought, well, no one else out there is going to be stupid enough to spend 40 years doing that. So I better share it with them and, and let them use 40 years for something more useful. Uh, so that was volume one and two. And then volume three, I, I started by accident. I, I was just playing around. I thought, gee, it'd really be useful clinically if, if I'd presented that information in volume one and two like this and sort of created a table uh, and the other resource I had, which I'd kind of forgotten about, I had folders and folders and folders sitting in a filing cabinet of translation of historical poems that I'd started many years ago. And at the time, my Chinese was pretty pretty flaky. And so I'd never finished them or polished them because my Chinese just wasn't good enough. But I had the information on the indications. And then I thought, well... Okay, so here's my compilation of 10 modern indications. I wonder how that lines up against the historical record of the indications. I'd, I'd already done one point, Stomach 36. I'd done a historical, sort of almost like an archaeological profile. Uh, these were the indications in the Ling Shu, the Su Wen, the Jai Jing, Sun Miao, and, and on through to, to, to the Qing dynasty, basically. And saw how various indications were there from the very beginning and they're still there. Others were there at the beginning and then they just kind of disappeared somewhere, just sort of dropped out. And then there were others that popped up quite recently that weren't there before. Like for stomach 36 vomiting, there's very little history of stomach 36 for vomiting through that, that profile. It, it's kind of uh, popped up relatively recently. And, and so I, I was very interested in that, like, you know, if a point's been used for something and then it stops being used for that, what happened? Was there a, a, a change in trend or did people just find something better that worked better? What, what, what happened? And so I'm, I'm fascinated by questions like that. And so you can only answer questions like that when you've got all the information in the big picture, which is why you have to spend ridiculous amounts of time sort of putting that all together. But then once you've got it and you can see it, you're like, oh, so that's what it looks like. And that's that's what that's what drives me to do that sort of stuff. But then also with a sort of a vague awareness, that, you know, I'm going to be able to share this with people when it's done so that they won't have to do this. Because if I think it's it's useful, then other people are probably going to look at that and say, yeah, that's useful for me too. So that's what volume, volume three sort of, I started playing with tables and coming at things from a slightly different angle. and. By the end of the day, I sort of went, I think I'm running volume three. <laughs> Oops. I love the way your brain works, John, and I'm sure that so many of our listeners will be curious to absorb your unique genius, and so we'll put the links to those books and where you can purchase them in the show notes. And you're also, there's some webinars that you have as well. We'll put some links to those 
Um, so if you want to hear more of of John's knowledge and wisdom, it just pours out of him and there's um, there's so much to soak up. Um, so there's some links for webinars there and also you offer mentoring as well. Yes, I've recently started that. I was having a, a long discussion with a, a very good friend of many years, uh, Greg Bantic, a uh, lovely man, just delightful man. And, and we were talking about what comes after teaching because the uh, he'd, he'd been at one stage, uh, well, for many years also involved in teaching and, and had gradually kind of moved out of it. And uh, the teaching that I've been doing has been shrinking uh, rapidly over the years and is now almost non-existent. So they keep me on the books and throw me small crumbs because I look good for accreditation because I've got a PhD, but they don't want to give me too much because I cost too much. So just given small amounts, but um, I uh, was looking for other directions, other things to do now that I'm not teaching so much and, and also other sources of income to replace the teaching. And so uh, Greg's told me that he was doing a lot of mentoring and, and he suggested I try it. Sounds like a good idea. So, yes, that's, that's quite a recent activity, but oh, I love it. It's so much fun just talking one-on-one with people and talking to them about the things that they want to know and that they're interested in. And so, yeah, the, the mentoring is a lot of fun. And uh, I've, I've still got a couple of places available to take on for regular, so regular mentoring or uh, one-off. So if, if people just want to sort of pick my brains about a particular topic, then I'm happy to do a, a one-off on, on that sort of thing as well. Fabulous. We'll put the links for that as well in the show notes. And what a delight it's been to have you on the show, John. You're such a wealth of knowledge and experience that it's so fascinating to hear your perspectives and your experience of how everything is unfolded in the world of acupuncture in in Australia at least so thanks for coming thank you very much um, I've I've just uh, submitted an article to a, to a journal in Portugal on on the history of, of acupuncture development in Australia and I'm writing another article from a different perspective uh, with Judy James for another journal at the moment uh, it's a Chinese journal that we're working on and so that's kind of caused me to revisit a lot of that uh stuff and um because it's for a journal to go scrambling looking for references wherever possible because that's that's always the hard part because like, yeah, <laughs> it's one thing about remembering it it's another thing about being able to document and reference you know? exactly yeah. exactly well, we look forward to reading that and um if it's out before we release the episode then we'll have the link to that as well well, let's have you on again soon, John. This sounds like fun. So I've greatly enjoyed myself. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. You're so welcome. And thanks to our listeners. You can like, comment on this episode, give any feedback that you that you like, or you might even have some questions for John. You can post those on our Facebook page if you're wanting to interact or on our Instagram page. That's it for today. Bye for now. Bye.